0: Romans chapter 8 verse number 26 I do hope sincerely you'll be back with us for the evening service if you know Christ we want you to participate in our communion service which the deacons of our church will be serving at that hour and then I want you to hear God's word brother Mike Campbell will be sharing that with us hope you'll bring your Bible along and join us at six o'clock this evening in choir back to our five o'clock practice in prayer downstairs five thirty, and you're welcome to join in those as you can I do hope that uh, you'll be praying for other folks in our fellowship. Many folks who have been sick are better, but we still have some who are not. And so please keep praying for them, if you would, that they'll be able to get back here with us very, very soon. And uh, let me encourage you to encourage other folks as much as you can. Maybe contact them, let them know you miss them if they're not here this morning. And uh, make them aware of the fact that they count and they're important. And we're interested in each and every one of them. Now to Romans chapter 8 this morning. We read verses number 26. If you would, notice, please, the passage. The Bible says, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself or himself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth that what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. glorified. I titled the message today strangely enough, the circumscribed chain of your security the circumscribed chain there's a reason for that but let me ask you first of all to focus the idea on the word chain. When I think of chains in context of the scripture, there are two or three verses that come to my mind pretty quickly, uh, only because of a study I did a long time ago in school, and for whatever reason, it just stuck with me. One of the things is, is I think of the story of Joseph, you know, in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter number 41, when uh, Joseph at age of 17 was put in a pit and sold down into Egypt. And um, when he was in Egypt, of course, you know the story how he was put in prison and he got out. And then he was elevated to one of the highest ranking positions outside of the position of Pharaoh that he could have been placed in. And in the context of that, the Bible says that when the Pharaoh lifted him up and gave him this honorable position, it says the Pharaoh took off his ring from his hand and put it upon Joseph's hand. And he arrayed arrayed him in vestures of fine linen And he put a gold chain about his neck. The fact of the matter is, the same thing, almost the same thing, happened when Daniel was uh, in Babylonian captivity. Same situation. As you recall, there was a vision that came to the the king there and uh, he couldn't get his magicians and his worldly pagans to tell him what it meant and so they said well we know a guy there's a guy here in in the kingdom his name is daniel and somehow he has connections and and he can tell you what that thing meant and so they call in daniel and the story goes in daniel chapter 5 verse number 16 he says first off he says i have heard of thee that thou canst make interpretations and dissolve doubts well that'd go well in any society wouldn't it he said that he can dissolve doubts. Now, if thou canst read the writing and make known to me the interpretation thereof, thou shalt be clothed with scarlet and have a chain of gold about thy neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now, Daniel initially said, and here's what he said before the king, let thy gifts be to thyself and give thy rewards to another. Yet I'll tell you what the writing of the king is and make known unto you. Later on in verse 29, however, there's no option. The king commanded. The king commanded. That they clothed Daniel with scarlet, put a chain of gold about his neck, and make a proclamation that he was the third ruler in the kingdom. So in the end, he did. He accepted the the chain of gold. What's important about that is that there is a a custom, as it were, that goes behind the idea of the chain about the neck. It certainly meant that he was in honor and he was exalted above all others in the kingdom. There's little doubt about that. The passage in the text itself suggests that. But what it also is, and the custom was that it had a sense of permanency, that this could not be changed until the Pharaoh died. If the Pharaoh died, then the process was, the possibilities were at least, that the chain of gold could be removed and somebody else could uh, be put in that position. But as long as the Pharaoh was alive, that that chain of gold said, this is a permanent position and this is a permanent proclamation and nobody is allowed to change it. That's sort of a, a rule of the law among those pagans. fact of the matter is, it lends itself to the same truth in Proverbs chapter 1. Verse number 8, where the Bible says, My son, hear the instruction of thy father, and forsake not the law of thy mother, for they shall be an ornament of grace unto thy head and a chain about thy neck. What that's talking about is the permanency of God's word being given so that it has an ongoing effect and the ideal of instruction and law, etc. But there is a negative connotation with chains that come to my mind, and that's the one that's written in Jude. Jude only has one chapter, and in verse 6 it says, "...the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness, under the judgment of that great day." That means that this very hour, somewhere, somehow, there are some angels that are being reserved in darkness, and they're being, as it were, held in everlasting chains. Now, I don't understand all that, but I believe it. You know, the Bible says it, so end of the discussion. That's what it says. I believe it. Well, the fact of the matter is, the whole thing about a chain, I think, corresponds to the text of Romans chapter number 8. And I'll point that out, I hope, very carefully to you. But let me, first of all, explain what the word circumscribed means. If you go to your dictionary, any good dictionary will tell you that the word circumscribed carries the ideal of something that's definite, something that's fixed, and something that is totally determined. It's not left to whim. It's not left to chance. It's not left to luck. Circumscribed means this is an absolute fixed issue. And I want to tell you this morning that your salvation is an absolute fixed issue. It is not left a whim or or some kind of floating factor that you thought maybe that you somehow could uh, influence or control. It's not left that way. It is left to, as it were, a holy God of heaven who worked things out according to His own pleasure, and the fact is that uh, these verses of Scripture we'll deal with today set that forth. i point out to you that this chain, and I call it chain because it's a chain of words. There are five of them in the text today to which we'll address ourselves. These uh, these chain of words reflect the truth of uh, believers being, as it were, fixed, determined, and definite in their salvation. Let me point out that we need to dig in a little earlier, and we begin in verse 28, which we've Covered already as far as our exposition, but let me back up and get some context with it. Verse number 28 And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. That verse of scripture really is laid upon or is sitting upon as a foundation, verses 29 and 30. You see, the ideal of all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. When you come to that, then you come to understand that there is a purpose. And let me tell you this right up front so you won't miss it. Did you understand that the purpose of God in saving you is much higher, much greater, much more involved than just keeping you out of hell? I hope you understand that. In fact, let me tell you something. From my point of view of studying the scriptures and understanding a little bit of what it is about the eternal purposes of God, keeping you out of hell would rank pretty much at the low bottom of that thing. God's got a much higher plan and a much higher purpose. Uh, It's almost like a secondary point, see. The point up here is what the reason is why God saved you. It's sort of the the filling between the two layers of the cake that you're not going to hell. That's that's down on the list somewhere. Now, from our standpoint, you may say, well, I think that's the greatest thing. Then may I tell you, you do not yet know what this passage of Scripture teaches clearly because that's not what it says. There's no reference in this text to hell. And yet he's talking about the ultimate purposes of God in saving us. So I think it's ought to be understood, look, getting saved out of and from hell is a wonderful thing from our perspective, knowing the suffering and the agony and the pain of things going there. But let me tell you something. What's more important is knowing what God sees as the high purpose. And what you see as the high purpose from God's point of view is recorded in these verses right here. So let me call your attention then to verse 29. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that we might be the firstborn among many brethren. First off, let me tell you that this is the ultimate purpose. And I think this is clearly say, for all people who have been saved by the grace of God, this is the precise purpose for which you were saved. It comes in two parts in verse number 29. First off, the first part, the first part of the reason is he saved you to be conformed to the image of his son. From God's point of view, a priority reason why he saved you is that you'd be conformed to the image, the likeness of his son. That's a priority Now, let me tell you, when you understand that, you begin to understand some of the things that's written in the epistles about how God, through Paul the apostle, in many cases of the epistle, or Peter, whichever the case may be of which you're reading, or even John, you'll come to understand they're they're pushing hard for there to be a change in your life to be conformed to the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the reason, because they present it and push it forward as both a present and a future purpose. For God, that he wants you to be exactly like his son. For instance, let me say it respectfully, that he wants a a, a multitude of clones of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's exactly what he wants. He wants you to be patterned after him so clearly that when God looks out over the crowd, he'd say, these are all my sons. These are all my sons. They're all alike. They're like my son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, my point is, that's what he's driving toward. And by the way, it's important to know that it runs several courses, but here's a couple. For instance, in Philippians chapter 3, verse number 10, Paul wrote, That I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made, what's the word, conformable unto his death. Now let me assure you of something, Uh, that's not meaning that every Christian needs to be crucified on a cross and go to Israel and Golgotha and be crucified there so you can be conformable to the death of Christ. That's not what that conforming means. And by the way, let me add also to that, it does not mean, in fact it is an insult to the holy God of heaven, that if you were in the Philippine Islands, you let somebody nail you to a cross over Easter. It does not mean that. It does not suggest that. It's not at all what it's talking about. What it's talking about is that in the context of Philippians chapter 3 verse 10, you may understand it better with this word in Colossians chapter 3. For ye are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. When he talks about dead and conforming to the, the, the likeness of his death, he's talking about as Christ died on the cross that you should die to yourself and be dead and, as it were, illustrated to the world so that Christ can live through you. And what he's saying by that in a simple sense is the more closely we reflect God's eternal purpose for us is when we die to self and act more like Christ. The more you act like Jesus Christ, the more you're fulfilling his purpose for you both now and later. And there is a later because Philippians chapter 3 and verse 21 says, Who shall change our vile body. Get the word change. He will change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Someday when Christ returns, his point is that he'll change your vile body. He's not only going to change your person, he's going to change your body. And all of them are going to be just like the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, when you get to heaven, it's going to look like a whole crowd of Jesus Christ people out there. That's his point. To the likeness of my son. I don't want anybody out there standing out as being different than my son. I want all of you to look like my son, act like my son, behave like my son. I want on your life a stamped image of my son. The Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm telling you, that's what Jesus Christ came here to do is to get you to believe on Him. And then the Father works in your heart to change it just like Him. And the more that's happening, the more you're fulfilling the ultimate purpose of which God brought you in the world and saved you in the first place for. And may I tell you, that's an exciting thing to me to know that that's exactly what God's purpose is. Something else. The second part, verse number 29 says... Or the same thing says to be conformed to the image of his son. And here's the second part of that. The second part is that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. That seems like a strange thing. But let me see if I can help you understand it a bit better. The highest and greatest and most important purpose of saving people is God to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ in himself. God being glorified is more important than anything else that you or I ever do everything. You you just read through the epistles and you see it very clearly. Even if you drink a glass of water, you know, you need to do it to the glory of God. Whatever you do, word or deed, do all to the glory of God. That's the ultimate thing for which God's going to hold you accountable. He's not going to hold you accountable as doing it in certain creeds and sects and ideas. He's going to hold you accountable as whether or not you glorified God. That's going to be the big deal. Well, the thing about that is that God has set forth in His Word, and this is one place He has, that one of the ways you glorify God is that you give Him His proper place. Proper place. Now, I want you to look at that verse and understand that's what He's driving at when He talks about that Jesus Christ, verse number 29, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Firstborn, of course, carries a different context to us than it did to Jewish community. With the Jewish son, an absolute high and lifted position, it was the position of prominence or preeminence, as we would say. And the fact of the matter is that God's purpose is to conform all of us who have been saved by the grace of God, His children, into the likeness of his Son, and then on top of that, give his son preeminence. By the way, that has to start right now. Jesus Christ is not going to be one among his equals. He's going to be above all, above all. And that's what this word means in this context. So it means that it's both our duty and it's also our destiny that we put Jesus Christ in His rightful place. Now listen to me, and listen to me good. The first thing that came to mind when I was thinking about this is years and years and years and years and years years ago when I heard some of this preached, as a young man, not saved all that many years, I thought to myself, that's not very exciting, you know? You know, why, why do I care if Jesus Christ gets first place and I you know now look I'm I'm a kid I've not been saved all that long and I'm thinking why is that such a big deal now let me tell you something and say this carefully but forcefully and directly this will probably reflect a lot on how much you have matured in your faith is to understand that the Christian life is not all about you it's all about him That's pretty hard to take, you know. We thought it was about us. My goodness, I I thought God just changed everything to just do it my way and fix me and save me and head me to heaven. I want to let you in on a secret. That really isn't it at all. Everything he has done through you, he has done for his own glory. And the sooner we catch on to that and quit being so self-centered and selfish about this thing called the Christian life, the happier and the more mature you'll ever be. We have brought this thing down to such a center that it's, it just circles my wagon and mine alone. Boy, what's good for me and mine and I, It's just, I don't care about the rest of you, and I don't care about anything else in the world, just this right here, right there. And God is saying, no, that's not what it's about. What it's about is about my glory. And I want to make sure that everybody understands that. Let me point you to a verse of Scripture. It's in Colossians 1 and verse 18. I recommend you memorize it. Colossians 1 verse 18. Colossians 1:18 says, "And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Wonderful verse, that in all things he may have the preeminence. So here's the purpose, God's purpose for you is, and by the way in the Greek the in the Greek language the word for preeminence there simply and has a very simple definition. And you can write it over the word or under it if you would. It's this definition that comes from the Greek word. It simply means to put first. To put first. It's not complicated, not complex for Christ to have the preeminence in your life. He has to be put first. Not second, not third, and not just on a list. He has to be given first place. If He doesn't have first place in your heart, in your home, your life, Jesus Christ is not preeminent. And I'm telling you that when God's purpose in you is fulfilled, listen to me, when God's purpose in you is fulfilled, ultimately, He will have. He will have. Now, you can either cooperate and begin now and give it to Him, or sooner or later, you'll surrender it. But you will give it to Him. That's his ultimate purpose, to conform you to the likeness of his son and then to give his son preeminence, absolute preeminence, absolute first place. And I say to you, that sounds easy, but it is not. We live in a society of selfish folks, and if you're not careful, you fall right in line with the rain. You'll get to thinking everything sort of works around you. I've never heard such foolishness in all my life over the last few weeks that we've heard about this uh, Terry Shiavo thing world thinks in such terms and have absolutely eliminated to, to, to the general population what God thinks about this. You know, God gives life and God takes life and, and the audacity of people to handle somebody's life like it's theirs to take or give. Hogwash. God gives and God takes and we better not tamper with that. And I don't care if you're a doctor or not a doctor, you have no business making judgments about who lives and who dies. And I'm telling you, this world's getting in a mess. Just because somebody said, well, you know, good grief. Well, I don't damn think she had a quality of life. Quality? Whose judgment? Did God speak and write in the heavens? Terry Chavo has no quality of life, therefore you can kill her. I don't think so. Forgive me, and let me be very careful here and very respectful. There are people in this world who would have recommended to Patty's grandfather that he have Mrs it put to sleep because she had no quality of life she's put in a four wall, wall room with a door on it and she had absolutely no comprehension understanding of who was out there who they were, what they were doing and why they were there and most folks say that's not quality of life, take it I'm here to tell you, God said you better leave that alone that's mine to take and mine to give and it's none of your business and you say well it's my life, no it's not your life It's God's life that he gave to you for which you're going to someday answer. And I'm appalled in our society and even in the Christian community. We've got this idea that we play by their rules. We don't play by their rules. We have a God in heaven who has written clearly. Here's what I think about life. And if you just doubt that, didn't think of all the millions of babies that could have been adults, by the way, who could have been paying into social security. Did you realize we'd not have a mess with Social Security right now if we had not killed all those people? We wouldn't have any problem. Instead of there being three to one pay in, and back years ago, 47 to one, we'd have 50 paying in. But we had the audacity to kill millions and then squawk about the problem it brought. You see, America's been good about that. We don't think about the outcome. We don't think about the ramifications. We just think this is what we're going to do right here, right now. By the way, it's the same thing about people, and Brother Jim, I think, asked me about this flag. It's half-staffed this morning. You know, like, Baptist Church would not lower the staff of this flag for the, the Roman Pope any more than we would the president of the Mormon Church. you forgive me. I don't recognize Rome as another state just because they have millions and millions and millions of people who follow their religion if they want to go to Nashville, Tennessee and recognize the Southern Baptists and if they want to go to other parts of the country and recognize conservative Bible believing people and the headships of their their ministries and denominations then I'll recognize the Pope until I don't do that. I don't do that and I think that's hypocrisy of the highest order for our country to ask us people to lower their flags because of the Catholic church leader dying. I mean, that's awful. And I'm appalled that they would ask us to do that. I respect him as an individual, and who wouldn't? Gracious man, I'm sure. But I pray for his family. And if he believed everything that he said he believed, a man's not in heaven tonight or today. He's in a devil's hell. And I don't say that with glee. But if he believes and practiced and his heart talks about believed and embraced what he says and teaches, as a Catholic church would, man's not trusting Jesus Christ and Christ alone in his sacrifice. He's trusting a repeated mass, which is a reproduction of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Jesus Christ died once and for all. Not once and again, every time Saturday morning or Sunday morning mass takes place. Do not believe that those wafers become the flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that juice becomes the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. To be once and again sacrificed, once is enough. If you believe otherwise, my friend, it's in question whether your salvation is securely based upon Bible truth. And then they ask us to lower our flag. By the way, even the code of the flag's ethics said you couldn't lower that flag for that purpose. I don't understand that. I don't understand our president not understanding the code of ethics concerning the flag. You don't don't lower the flag just for any great person you think is great. There has to be some legitimate reason for that, and usually in the national interest. Now, if you accept Rome as a, another state, I understand you thinking that, but I don't, you know, I don't expect Utah as a, another state because the Mormons are there. And I don't expect you to look to Nashville, Tennessee, because that's where the Southern Baptists are headed. I don't expect that. But my point is, you see, we, we, we are being forced and pushed into the rules of this society. I remind you what our Lord said. If I were of this world... And his point, I am not. And if those of you who have been saved by the grace of God, you are not. Oh, do you have to move in the marketplace? Sure you do. But do you have to abide by, live by, and go by all their philosophies, ideologies? Absolutely not. And if you do, you'll be as confused as a termite in a yo-yo about every ethical issue that's on the table as is this world's proven just this last week about Terry Schiavo. We don't follow their directive. We don't follow their mandates. We follow the mandate that's set forth in God's Word. And by the way, so very important here that we talk about this thing about preeminence because it literally is the idea that uh, in verse number 29 of Romans 8 that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. I I usually would ask this question in a a context of like saying uh, when uh, the last president was running for uh, his reelection, did you do anything to help him get elected? And some folks in this room say, yeah, I did. I voted for him. Or or I handed out some literature for him. Did you know that's basically the ideal of what's carried in in Romans 8, 29 here, the second purpose? You see, what the point made is, is, uh, is to give him preeminence, to give him the first place. And that's what you work for if you did that. You worked to put the President of the United States in first place in the position to which he was seeking. Our Lord says... I want you to put me in first place and do whatever you've got to do to do it. Now, look at this carefully. You see, it might be easy for you to work to elect a president. But it's going to be tougher for you to put the Lord Jesus in a position and leave him there. Because everything about you is going to fight that. This world will fight it philosophy of the world but your flesh will fight it and the fact of the matter is that's exactly what God wants you to do now because eventually that's how it's going to happen for instance are you self-centered are you selfish do you think of me myself and I all the time is that the main concern you have about life and living what this passage is saying you better get over that because I'm telling you when you get this this precise purpose fulfilled you're not only going to be conformed to the image of my son you're going to put my son first And you better get used to it now. And that's why the scriptures encourage it. Again, there's the passage, for instance, in Philippians chapter number 2. In Philippians chapter 2, in verse number 8, Paul wrote it. He said, And being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him, or put him up higher, and given him a name which is equal to every other name. Is that what it says? Above every other name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven, of things in the earth, and things under the earth. And that every tongue, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the what? Glory of the Lord. You see, it all goes back to His glory. And the point made is that someday, at some point, with everybody, they're going to say, He is the preeminent one. He's number one. Now, you can either do it now, or you can do it later. But you're going to do it. And my point is, that's exactly why you were saved. And see, we miss that. We don't think about that as being that important a deal. It is important. And every time a preacher gets up and tries to get you to put Christ first in your life, you thought it was just some insignificant challenge that was okay for the moment. I'm telling you, it's an eternal cause. And it's going to be realized one way or the other. But my point is, I think it'd be better to cooperate with God and say, God, I want what you want. And if that's what you want for my life, then I want to be conformed to the image of your Son. And I want to put, and I'm going to start putting the Lord Jesus Christ in first place right here, right now. Well, that's the first part. And we'll see how much we can get in. The last part, look if you would at verse number 29. Now, not only what I call the precise purpose God has for you, but I want you to see now the chain that we talked about, this circumscribed chain. It's in verse number 29, following. He says, verse 29, for whom the Lord, or for whom he, the Lord, did foreknow, he also did predestinate. Verse 30, moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. What I would think, and I hope you'll see, as you look at those words, these words make up a chain. Five links in this chain. And as you look at it, I hope you see it as the steps that God has taken to get His purposes in your life fulfilled. To get you conformed to the image of His Son and to get you to give Jesus Christ preeminence, here are five steps that He's taken to make sure that happens. And by the way, uh, this chain, as we look at it, you need to understand three things about it that just jump out at me when I read them every single time. First of all, and they all start with you, or at least I alliterated them that way so you can remember them. Number one, this chain is unbreakable. That's encouraging to me. You see, it's unbreakable. You can't you can't change any of this. That's why we use the word circumscribed. It's fixed. It's it's definite. It's determined. It's not up for vote. This is a circumscribed chain. This is fixed. And what he's saying is, every Christian fits into this. And this chain, as it were, sort of circles you. And if you've been saved by the grace of God. All five of these links make dead sure that nothing can ever change you from Jesus Christ. You're fixed, you're determined, and it is definite. So the first thing is don't forget it's unbreakable. The second thing you should see, and you should be able to see it just by looking at the ver the words, verses 29 and 30, is that it has total unity. You see here in the words that he used. In verse 29, for for whom he did foreknow, he also, he also did predestinate. Verse 30, moreover, whom he did predestinate, he also called, he also justified, he also glorified. You notice two things about there is a unity, and the reason is very simple, because God's doing all of it. Do you notice man doesn't do anything in these five links in this chain? Man doesn't do any of them. God did the predestinating, or foreknowing. God did the predestinating. God did the calling. God did the justifying. And God does the glorifying. Man didn't do a thing. Salvation is not of man. Salvation is of the Lord. And we need to get a good grip on that. We somehow lose grip of that. It's of the Lord. And He did it all. He did the whole ten yards. And the point made here is, this thing is in total unity, and it's because God's in charge of it. Everything God's in charge of always is perfectly balanced and perfect unity. There's a third thing, though, and that is, unmistakable tense, especially true of the latter, but it is written in a sense, it's all past tense. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate, verse 30, whom he did predestinate, them he also called... "...and whom He called, them He also justified, and whom He justified, them He also glorified." Point made is that even though, and in some of these cases, as with the word glorified, even though glorified is a future tense kind of, or a future ideal for us, from God's vantage point, all of these are past. They're all done deal. When he looked down the corridors of time and saw what was going on, and God made judgments and decisions and what have you, the point made is he lock, stock, and barrel sealed you for all eternity. And he is sealing you for all eternity had two purposes. One, conform you to the image of his Son. And two, help you make Jesus Christ preeminent in your life. That's his purpose. And he did it all with one sweep. And that's why I say to you that it's awfully easy for us to think of salvation as just this moment, that this instantaneous thing. That's not it at all. Before any sinner ever comes to the New Life Baptist Church, sits under the preaching of God's Word in Sunday school or worship service, let me cue you in on something. Before the foundation of the world, before the foundation of the world, you were chosen and you just thought you walked in here and got zapped up behind the side of the head by the Holy Spirit and He convicted you of your sin and it just happened right here, on it. Right You'll forgive me, but that's awfully naive after you read the Scriptures. Oh, well, grant you, when I got saved, I didn't know that. I, I just thought walked in church, got zapped one night with conviction, and boy, I walked down the aisle and the preacher took me by hand and asked one of our Sunday school teachers to take me to the side room, and Ms. Fitzgerald took me over there and opened that Bible and showed me how to be saved. I did. I thought that's all it was. It just happened right there in that capsulated moment. Not true. God was working on my behalf before I was ever even thought of being born. By the way, doesn't that make you think that God thought of you before you ever thought of Him? Sure it does. Before you ever had your first thought about God, God thought about you. And by the way, He was working things to accommodate and deal with that situation. Now look at the five links in the chain and for the time we have left. In verse number 29... For whom he did foreknow—that's a—that's a a strange word, foreknow—but it means just what it says, to know before. And that says just what I just said, and that is that God, with you at least, from your standpoint, my standpoint, we were not afterthoughts; we were forethoughts with God. For instance, people don't just come into the New Life Baptist Church and God, oh, say, oh, this guy's in church. I think I'll convict him of his sin. You know, that's not how it happens. That'd be an afterthought. Oh, I never thought of you before, but I think of you now because I saw you in church. That's not the way God works. God thought of you a long time ago. And the fact of the matter is, it means to know before. Now, listen to me carefully. When we define election, and this is my conviction, I came out of a reformed ministry, of course, the Presbyterian Church. And I was geared under their catechism and so forth. The fact is, the definition, however, that I've embraced, and I believe the Bible embraces, is this one. Listen carefully. It says, the definition of election, that sovereign act of God... In grace, whereby he chose in Christ, Jesus, in Christ Jesus, for salvation, all those who he foreknew would accept him. Now, I base that on First Peter chapter number 1 and verse number 2. Where in First Peter 1 it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, bithia elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you, and peace be multiplied. When I say the Bible teaches, I believe that what God did and what has happened here in, in this context is, I believe God looks ahead and sees what your reaction is to His revelation is. And God chooses on the basis of that. Now, I've been around the block a lot of times. And I know what our friends in the Reformed community say. And Because I was in the Reformed community with the Presbyterian Church. I knew what they said then and what they say now. That's not sovereignty. Oh, yes, it is. Oh, yes, it is. It is sovereignty. And let me tell you how it's sovereignty. It's the sovereignty, the same kind of sovereignty that when God saw through the eternities before Adam and Eve sinned, that they would sin. And he made provision for them the same sovereignty and you can't take one without the other now in the reform position where our church taught they taught that that there was determination or what they call predetermination which was predetermined that adam and eve would sin well look if you predetermine that if you if you're saying that that god not only knew it but he determined it was going to happen uh, as far as i'm concerned you got a whole lot of problems you got to deal with that god made them sin this was predetermined god decided they would but in my uh, book of catechism, it says from a reformed position, and I quote them it says, All those whom God has predestined are predestinated unto life, and those only, those are always emphasized, those only, only those God predestinated, nobody else, he is pleased in his appointment and accept in time to effectually call. Yet, they say, so as they come, talking about the sinner, most freely they come, being made willing. By His grace. Now, to me, that's their first contradiction. You see, what they'll say to us and me, uh, someone who holds the position I do about this matter, they'll say, "Look, uh, you, you know, you got a poor, lost sinner. He's lost in his sin. He's dead and trespasses in sin. How are you going to get him saved? How are you going to get him to come to faith in Jesus Christ if he's not already predetermined to come? If he's not that God, you know, chose him and didn't choose this other guy, but He chose him to come. That's the only way he can come." Forgive me, but they've already told me how he could come. You listen to me, and you listen to me good. The same grace that can make a sinner willing can make him able. The same grace and grace of God that bringeth salvation has appeared to who? All men. So the same grace that appeared to all men that can make him willing to come can make him able to come. And to state it any other way, it's going to say, well, you know, wait a minute. God picked this guy, but he didn't pick that guy. You know, he, 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 doesn't, he, can't, he can't be saved. When you start doing that kind of thing and talking about that in predestination and foreknowledge and whatever have you, you turn this thing into what I call a real service. Because what you do then is you make God change God's whole battle plan and his whole approach to what he did in the Scriptures. You see, in the Scripture, it's written over and again, and maybe I should, and let's just do it. Let's move on to the word predestinate in verse number 29 where it says, "Or whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. And let me say unto that that based on what God knew in each of us individually deciding concerning him, God proceeds then to map out a certain outcome. And I believe that's what he did. Once God sees that a man's going to receive or believe his revelation of himself, God then begins to map out what's God going to do. Now let me show you a point. In in Ephesians chapter number one, Ephesians chapter one. Look if you would at verse number four. In Ephesians chapter number one and verse number four. He says, According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, verse 5, having predestinated us under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. And the ideal in uh, this whole point is and it carries over to verse 11 he says in whom also we have obtained an inheritance being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will what this whole thing is is to say and what I would say in most cases where people have a, a, a position that God chooses some and, and designates others predestinates some to heaven and some to hell is to simply say that, that uh, nobody nobody Will go to hell because Jesus Christ wants them there. Nobody to say that that is true contradicts hundreds of verses in the New Testament. If you say people are going to go to hell because God wants them in hell, God hates them, and so on, then let me tell you what else you do to God. This same God that said love your enemies would be hating His. You see, if you make that so, where you say, well, God you know, God wants me to love my enemies, but these people who hated God and they they, they, they disobeyed Him and they, they spit on Him, then you're saying, God tells me to do one thing and He does another. I'm afraid not so. What the Bible is very clear on is that when God gave the invitation and said that all men may be saved, I'm here to tell you, all men may be saved. And if you shortchange that, if you say, oh, no, they can't, Then let me tell you what God has done. God has done a dirty thing to offer somebody something that they cannot believe or receive. I don't know of anything more ungodly than to make an offer that you can't back up. If you can't back it up, don't make it. That's like when missionaries come here and they say, would you pray for us? And you walk, yes, sir, I'll pray for you. If you can't pray for them and you're not going to pray for them, that's an awful thing for you to make them think you are. And for God to offer salvation when it's not for everybody. It's only for those who have been predetermined, foreknowledge states that, you know, they're just these folks I've chosen here. Without there any option for any of these to be saved. I'm telling you, that to me is ludicrous. And on top of being ludicrous, it absolutely puts God in a very bad light. Because of verses like these. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise. And that's the very point. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise. Can He save everybody or can He? Yes, He can. And He made a promise that those who would come to Him, He would indeed no wise cast out. The fact of is, the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, whether it's about His return, whether it's about His salvation. As some men count slackness, but in His long suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It says, and it says it equivocally, all men would come. There's also the verse in 1 Timothy chapter number 2, verse 4. Who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. All men. 1 John chapter 2, verse number 2. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The whole world. Not just a few Baptists but a whole entire world. No one, and you get this down good, no one is predestinated to hell. Nobody. Or all of those invitations are absolutely foolish. It's foolish. It's malarkey. If those don't mean anything, then God was wrong in putting them in His Word to make a sinner think he could just get saved. And I say to you that... Whosoever will may come and is a legitimate, sincere invitation for salvation. And to think otherwise is to wrap that thing of the real purpose and point of its intent. There's then that third word in Romans chapter number 8. In Romans chapter 8, he not only says that he did foreknow, but he also did predestinate. And then in verse 30, he says, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. We know that the calling of God is with His Word, and we've dealt with this Word before. In the context, we usually use the word effectual, but I'm not sure that's a good word for it. You know, uh, the the Scriptures aren't aren't really, you know, they don't use that word effectual. We just pin that word on there to sort of give a distinction between what we call a general call. A general call is that when you sit in a service, if you were uh, come to a service and you heard the gospel and the Holy Spirit spoke to your heart, convicted you of your sin, that would be the Holy Spirit calling you. That's a general call, we'd say. Or they would say. Then there's the effectual call, which would be the ideal that it is that call which produces the actual fruit. That is, the Holy Spirit speaks, but you respond. And in fact, the call has, been, has blossomed and bloomed and has been effective in its purpose. And the reality has come. But the Bible is also clear that there are people who were invited who did not come. Let me give you an illustration. This one comes in John chapter 5 when our Lord was speaking to a group of Jews. He said this, John 5:40 ye will not come to me that you might have life you made a choice I gave you an invitation and you refused to come now my friend it's not that he said if you come I'd have to look over the books to determine which of you have been chosen which of you have not and then I would pick out your names who have called and then we would save you and the rest of you would have to go home that's not what he said his point is in the text of John chapter 5 and verse number 40 I've invited all of you And what you did, you made a choice. You would not come to me that you might have life. Another text says that you might even have it more abundantly. You wouldn't come. I invited, you wouldn't come. It's the same basic illustration that's used over in the Proverbs, chapter number 1, where he said, you know, I called, you you refused. Even though that text is sort of a personification of wisdom. The point made is its application is drawn from the New Testament. Or New Testament draws application from that one to say that there are occasions when God spoke and worked and moved. And people say, hey, I don't have anything to do with that. And God won't be put off forever. God speaks and convicts. And if man doesn't respond, God said, that's fine. It's your call. God doesn't overrule your will. But God does mean what He said. And He invited you to come. There's a fourth word. It's the fourth link in the chain. And it's the word justified whom he called them he also justified we dealt with this back in the early part of Romans so I'll not deal in detail with it now just to say simply what it means is to create or make us into a right standing with God and it's all God's work to make us to conform to that and so consequently in light of that fact those whom he justified is then brought to the latter part of those he glorified I don't know personally everything that's involved with this last one I don't know everything that's involved with being glorified. But I do know this, that the text of Scripture we've already covered. Look, if you would, Romans chapter 8. Look at verse number 17 and 18. Back to 17 and 18, I do know enough about it that all the things that I go through here in this life can't compare with having this. You see, Romans 8:17, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, join heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, That we may be also glorified together. Verse 18 For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. It's fair to say, and I believe honest to say, that foreknowledge and predestination belong to God's eternal past. The calling and the justification deal with what we call the believer's present, the glorification deals with the believer's future even though in the context they're all written in a future or in a past tense kind of thing. Our point here is that salvation was not something that just happened. It's something that's been been worked on from eternity past and won't be completed until we get home and are glorified. That's what the text is saying, and that's what it's all about, is that Jesus Christ did it from start until finish. By the way, the verse of Scripture... And I'm sure you've used when you've talked to someone about uh, coming to faith in Christ. You may have used it. Romans chapter 3 and verse number 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That will be reversed when you get to heaven. You came short when you were a sinner and you did not match up to the ability to glorify God. But once you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you can bring glory to God. In fact, that's the very purpose for God saving you is to bring glory to God. Salvation reverses that, and at least in the believer's life. So in in this context, there are two or three things I leave you with this morning. hope you'll think about them carefully, and that is, first of all, to ask you, have you heard God's call? Either general, in a sense that the Holy Spirit has spoken to you about your relationship with Christ, has He spoken to your heart about coming to faith in Christ? The other one is to believers, and that is this, are you cooperating with God for Him to fulfill His purpose in your life? Are you being conformed more and more to the likeness, the image of the Lord Jesus Christ? And two, are you putting the Lord Jesus Christ first in your life? Is Does He have the preeminence in your life? And that's what the purpose God has for you ultimately. And it would be wise and good for you and I to begin now cooperating with Him to fulfill it. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word. And thank You for this text of Scripture that gives us this perception of how important and serious our salvation is and how that it was worked on from eternity past and how it'll be completed in eternity future and how we thank you and we praise you for your great work on it and we realize that this is not the doing of man obviously obviously it's not it is all of you and with that we are grateful and thankful and we ask you this morning to make these truths real to us and help us then respond and way that we would bring the most honor, the most glory to you. I pray for those who may be here without Christ. I pray especially for them that you'll help them to understand that uh, you thought about them before they ever thought about you. And you will begin to plan and map for them the work that you were doing in their hearts and bringing the Holy Spirit across their path to speak to them using your word. And them being in this service this morning is no less a work you have accomplished than any of the other works of creation. And so help us to understand that part and help them to understand that indeed you did love the world so much that you gave your only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. So they don't have to worry. Individuals don't have to worry about whether they were predestinated or not or whether they're elected or not. Those are from your perception and from your standpoint. From our standpoint, we're to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature and leave the saving to you and these folks coming to this service this morning here at New Life Baptist Church without doubt you have brought them here and I pray therefore that you may show them reveal to them in their hearts by your spirit their need to believe on Jesus Christ as Savior even this morning I pray for believers that you will help us to continually perpetually conform to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ and I pray that you will help us to put Christ first, give him the preeminence in our life, in our work on our jobs, our families, everywhere, I pray, help Christ to be the preeminent one. And may we always bow to his will rather than our own. Protect your people from the influences of this world as they try to bend our thinking to their thinking. Help us to always seek your face and look into your word, Get, get direction that we need for life and living. Now speak to hearts and bring forth the fruit that you've ordained for this hour. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? 282 in your hymn book, Just As I Am. If God has spoken to your heart this morning, we invite you to come. First off, if you're here without the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, we'd be delighted to help you understand what the Bible says and what the Bible teaches. And if you need help and assistance in other areas, we'd be glad to do so. But that's the primary one, to make sure you know Christ as your Savior. But secondly, if God's spoken to your heart as a believer concerning your conforming to the likeness of Christ, God's Son, or even to putting Jesus Christ first in your life. If you need counsel concerning that, if it's something you have questions about, we would be delighted to help you in that too. Whatever the case is, we want to be a help to you. Whatever God has said, whatever direction He's given you, we simply encourage you to follow. So with that, as we sing 282 verse 1, you simply obey the Lord, would you? Together sing, Just as I am God has spoken to your heart would you come God has spoken to your heart would you come God has spoken to your heart would you come Thank you very much. Thank you for your time and your attention, and thank you for your attendance. I appreciate your being with us in the Sunday services after revival. I know many of you, are sure, are tired, but I thank you for getting up and getting in here and being with us today. If you find that you missed some people today, let them know. Let them know that you're thinking about them, and if they're sick, we'll pray for them. If they need help, we'll assist them, and if they're just getting tired and weary, hope you can lift them up a little bit get them back here with us. Hope you will be back for the evening service, 6 o'clock. Brother Mike will be speaking, and then we'll observe communion in the service. So hope you'll come and join us for that. With that said, let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and opportunity we have to hear it taught, preached in Sunday school and now the worship service. And I pray as we go from this place that you'll give us a safe afternoon. And turn our hearts back toward here for the evening service at 6. Bless Brother Mike as he prepares and makes ready to speak. I pray you'll give him your power and your blessing and direction. Bless the communion service, May. We take time to worship in this period, and we find and fulfill the direction you gave for that. Pray that you'll bless our evening together. Pray, Father, that you'll be with the folks of our church who are not well, who are yet sick and uh, need your help. I pray you'll touch, heal them, and raise them up and get them back to us very, very soon. And I do, again, pray for Brother Brummett that you will heal his heart both ways, emotionally and also physically. Encourage him and strengthen him. Pray that he'll be back with us in the services very, very soon. Now bless us. we leave. Give safety and protection to your people and good health. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you until we meet again. You are dismissed.